0: of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Sagub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Carath ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good evening, uh, folks. Uh, my name's Andrew Errington. I'm the senior minister here. Can I uh, add my welcome to Kez's? It's great to see people back after the break. It's great to see some new faces. Um, you might have been a bit uh, weirded out by that reading, but don't worry. I'm going to kind of explain how we got there and where we're going. But first, let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, today, what's going on is that we begin a new sermon series. Uh, we'll be looking at the story of Elijah the prophet, told which is told in the middle of the book of Kings. Um, I hope to come back to this book at the end of the year and look at Elijah's successor, Elisha. We're going to begin with Elijah and end with Elisha. Their names are confusing, so we've separated them by about 10 months. Now, for some of you, the stories we'll be looking at over the next few weeks will be familiar, maybe from Sunday school. But for many of us, this is not that familiar, this territory. Uh, One Kings is not a book that's on particularly high rotation for most people. Uh, So why are we we doing this? Uh, Why are we looking at this fellow Elijah? Well, two reasons. The first is that Elijah and Elisha are surprisingly important for understanding Jesus. When you read the Gospels, one of the things you notice is that people keep calling Jesus Elijah. They say things like, you are the Elijah who was to come. Uh, Jesus himself talks about Elijah quite a lot. Uh, This is a bit odd if you have no idea who Elijah is, but it was obviously really important in Jesus' day. Uh, So one of the reasons to become familiar with these stories is that they are crucial background for understanding who Jesus was. And immediately after this series, we're going to try and kind of put it to work By reading some of the key passages from Luke's Gospel uh, that talk about Elijah. Okay, so I hope that'll be kind of interesting and illuminating when we get to it. So that's the first reason. It helps us understand Jesus. The second reason, though, is that these stories are just good for their own sake. These stories of Elijah and Elisha tell us of a time in Israel's history that was extraordinarily dark. They show us how God worked in the midst of really great evil. This makes them difficult reading at times. There are some passages here which are pretty shocking. But it also means that some things cut through with searing clarity. For even in that dark, evil time, the word of God gave light. I think these stories can encourage us. They can remind us of things that are are deeply important for Christian faith and that we may need one dark day. But all of that will make more sense if we just get on with it. So without further ado, let's dive in. Uh, Let me invite you to look with me at where the story of Elijah begins in 1 Kings 16. The passage is printed in your handouts if you want to look at it there. Um, We're going to look first at Elijah's context, which we see in the last part of chapter 16, before turning to how Elijah comes on the scene in chapter 17. Okay, so first, let's get a sense of where we are and where we are going. The book of Kings which was originally uh, one book but is divided in our Bibles into two, it tells the long story of the history of Israel from the death of King David through to the fall of Jerusalem. If anybody wants any PowerPoint uh, tutorials, I'm available. Um, So here's a summary of the book of Kings. It goes right through from the death of David, that's the beginning. David dies like a mafia godfather, kind of telling his son Solomon, make sure you kill these guys. It's quite, yeah, you should read it. And it goes to the fall of Jerusalem, which is right at the end of 2 Kings. Last year, many of you will remember, we looked at the prophet Isaiah. A lot of what Isaiah talks about is about the end bit, the fall of Jerusalem. So what we're doing in this series is we're going back to kind of in the middle of it. Um So what has happened thus far in Kings, right, between the death of David and where we are picking up? Well, the first 10 chapters of the book, uh, they're all about King Solomon and basically how excellent things were under his rule for a while. Things go pear-shaped with Solomon, but for a long time they're amazing. In fact, Solomon's reign is really the high point of Israel's history. But at the end of Solomon's life, suddenly things unravel. His son Rehoboam, who inherits the kingdom, here's a, a one artwork of him. He probably didn't look anything like this. Uh, this is this is Rehoboam. This is actually reflects a scene in 2 Kings 12, where uh, one Kings 12, where he basically tells a rude joke. Uh, but Rehoboam turns out to be a a, a really big idiot. He's in the running for one of the biggest kind of jerks in the Bible. Um, and what happens is almost immediately a major split in the kingdom occurs and a civil, a civil war begins. And a northern, the kingdom is divided into two. And the northern kingdom will be called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And Rehoboam is king of Judah. And the northern kingdom breaks off under the leadership of a man named Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Uh, Here's another artwork of him. He almost certainly looked nothing like that, but there he is in a painting, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, in itself, this divide was probably salvageable. But then Jeroboam does something very wicked and stupid. You see, he's worried that people are going to keep traveling south to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And he's worried that that in the end is going to undo the northern kingdom. It's a reasonable worry. And so he thinks, what I need to do is to get people to worship in the north. And so what he does is he makes two golden calves and he puts one in the south of his kingdom and one right up in the north and he says to the people in 1 Kings twelve twenty eight, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you know something about the history of Israel, you'll know that this is a massive disaster. In fact, it's so bad, it's almost funny. Because this is exactly the same mistake, the mistake that this fellow Jeroboam makes. It's exactly the same mistake as Israel made right at the beginning at Mount Sinai when they were getting the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are literally you must have no other gods and you must not make an idol or an image. And what do they do? They make a golden calf. It's so bad back then that it almost, it's almost the end of Israel right at the beginning. And now Jeroboam does exactly, exactly the same thing. And this disaster fatally damages the northern kingdom from day one. Because the kings of the north, whose story is told uh, really in chapters 13 to 16, the bit that's white after the lightning bolt, which signifies the divide, obviously, Um, The kings of the north, one after the other, they, they can't get out from under this mistake that Jeroboam has made. In fact, they double down on it. And that continues until we get to our passage and to the worst king yet, King Ahab. This may or may not be a statue of Ahab. Nobody knows. It was dug up probably an Israelite king, could be Ahab, but might not be, but that's the best you get. We're going back a long time here, and the archaeology is pretty thin on the ground. But Ahab, as our passage shows us, it it gets really ugly with him. Have a look at it there from verse 29. It's on the screen. It's also in your outline. This is how Ahab's introduced. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Uh, This is how the dates work in kings. The northern kings are dated against the southern kings and vice versa. Ahab son of Omri became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab son of Omri did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat... Uh, He's the one I was talking about before, Jeroboam, who led the northern kingdom away. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Baal is the name of the chief Canaanite deity. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. You can see it on the map Um, It's kind of in the middle there to the left above Shechem, uh, Samaria. That's the capital. And Ahab sets up an altar to Baal in the city. Um, Ahab also made an Asherah pole. This is a kind of sacred religious object, probably a pole of some kind. And did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. So Ahab is a bad guy. He doesn't just repeat the terrible mistake of Jeroboam. He goes much further. He marries a pagan princess and brings her religion, the old religion of the Canaanites that Israel got rid of. He brings it back into Israel, building temples and religious objects to make it happen. It's a wholesale embrace of another God and a wholesale rejection of Israel's God, the Lord. It's important, though, that we also register that Ahab is pretty successful as a king. 22 years is a pretty good reign, actually. Ahab's reign is stable, long, and effective in lots of ways. He's able to undertake infrastructure projects like building temples. We're also told in the verses that follow that during his time, uh, the city of Jericho was rebuilt by a, a person called Heel of Bethel. Now, this is actually quite a bad thing, as we'll see. Um, but first notice that under Ahab, cities are being rebuilt. Right? That is hard and expensive. So Ahab must have been a pretty successful ruler in a lot of ways. And yet he is taking Israel in a very bad direction. The rebuilding of the city of Jericho is a really sinister thing. Jericho was a city that had stood against the Israelites when they entered the land and which was utterly destroyed by Joshua. It was an evil place, a center of Canaanite worship. And when Joshua destroys it, back in the book of Joshua, way back a few books before, Joshua says this, at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. This is a terrible curse. It's meant to be a warning that will stop anyone, that no one must ever rebuild this city, ever. Ever. But Heal of Bethel does. Back in our passage in verse 34, in Ahab's time, Heal of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. What does it mean, at the cost of his sons? Well, we can't be sure, but it's quite likely that it means he sacrificed his children. Child sacrifice, horribly, was practiced in the Canaanite religions. Whatever the case, what is clear is Heel is willing to build the city at the cost of his children. What we see here, I think, is that under Ahab, a deliberate extended effort is made to rebuild the world and the religion that was in the land before Israel. It is a policy of promoting Canaanite gods, whatever the cost, and a refusal of all Israel's history with the Lord. It's almost like these guys say, we know the history, we see the risks, We see the darkness and we want it. I think we have to pause here. Not to take some easy practical lesson, some application that we can take to work with us tomorrow. We need to pause just to grieve, to lament the horror that we see here and the evil that human beings are capable of this kind of moment with Ahab and Heal, it could easily be taken as evidence of the problem with religion and the way religion leads to violence. That's what we see here, isn't it? People doing terrible things for their gods. It is a terrible truth that religious devotion has fueled violence. But I think it would be a mistake to see that as the main lesson of this passage. No, this chapter in Israel's story is also just about the power and arrogance of rulers. It's about the way human beings can foolishly set dreadful things in motion, things they don't fully understand, and the way people can resolutely do evil deeds because of what they want, and what they want to achieve. It's about the way people can put their own desires and their own goals above everything, even if it means sacrificing the vulnerable. And these are all things you can have, and the world has had in plenty, without religion. The 20th century was full to overflowing, with rulers full of their own importance, unleashing destructive forces they could not comprehend in the name often of secular and atheistic principles. It was full of just this combination of pride and determination and indifference to the weak that we see here. This little moment where where Heel expends his sons so that he can rebuild Jericho It ought to make us stop in our tracks and lament the mess and the horror that humanity can embrace and unleash. Under the reign of Ahab, a deep darkness is unleashed in Israel. And it grows. And it starts to swallow people. And it makes God angry. That's what we're told. The anger of the Lord is kindled against this evil. And so into it, God speaks a word. But he speaks it in an unlikely way. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe. You know what that means? It basically means some guy from nowhere. Nick from Arncliffe. Susan Smith from East Maitland. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe he's God's plan and he comes into the story without a word of explanation or a backstory because it's not Elijah that matters but the word of God that he brings it is a fearsome word a message that in one moment one short simple sentence utterly undoes Ahab and all his power it exposes His big, dark rain for the house of cards that it is. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah just reminds Ahab that there is a God who lives, whether Ahab believes in him or not. The God of Israel, remember him? Whom I serve, he says, but you don't. And the earth is his to command, and all your greatness, all your power, he can undo it in a moment. You Just watch him. He's going to. Where is the real power here, Elijah asks. Who is really in command here? It will reign only by my word. Me, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe because I serve him. And then he drops the mic and he's gone. It's such a powerful entrance because it reveals how vulnerable Ahab's reign actually is. What an arrogance it is when human beings forget that they are not in charge of the earth But however many things we can do, we can't control the weather. Surely we don't need to be reminded of this in Australia today after fires and floods and two years of flailing about because of a microscopic biological entity. Elijah reminds Ahab that for all his might, if it doesn't rain... He's stuffed. Let's make sure we don't forget that either, hey? Now, I'm not sure Elijah actually had a plan for what would happen next. I wouldn't be surprised if he'd been so focused on delivering this speech that he hadn't really thought about the next step. But I'm sure that once he'd said this, it was painfully obvious that he was in a dangerous position. And he's, he's just basically told the king, a fairly full-on king, that, He's undone. It's the kind of speech that rulers don't normally react well to. In any case, what happens is that the Lord tells him what to do, and what he has to do is to hide. Then the, Lord, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I've, command, I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. This is the strategy. Elijah will go and he will hide. How is that going to work? How is Elijah going to survive? Don't worry. God has some birds. It's a lame plan. It's, It's a... It's a tiny, weak, unlikely plan. It's laughably small and uncertain and unreliable. The ravens will feed you. But that's the beauty of it, you see. It's just the weakness, it's the smallness of the whole thing that is the point. There is Ahab with all his power, his temples, his Baal, his Asherah pole his ruthless servants who will do anything for him. There he is, cloaked in power and darkness and wrath, and it all falls down. It is all undone in a moment. It is revealed for the hollow, fragile nothing that it is because of Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and some birds. Because Elijah and the birds serve the Lord, the God who lives and to whom the whole world belongs, and whose bidding all the creatures do. He commands the rain, and he commands the ravens. His word will undo Ahab in a moment. The weakness, the smallness, the lameness of Elijah, and his total non-strategy of hiding and being fed by birds... It all just highlights the awesome power of God in His Word. Here is a time in Israel's history where it looks like the darkness has finally won. When the power and dominance of evil and hatred of God are unstoppable. And all that darkness is suddenly brought to its knees. Not by some great champion or army or strategy, but by the word of God spoken by a nobody. This is how God works, you see. This is how God works. He arranges things so that it is clear that it is his word that does the work. Remember how the Apostle Paul described the work of Christian mission, of sharing the gospel with people. If you don't remember it, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can read it sometime in the letter. Here it is. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. By treasure, Paul means the treasure of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the word of God. We have this treasure, he says, in clay jars. By that he means they're just breakable, fragile. It's like Elijah and the ravens. It's not powerful, it's it's kind of hopeless. It was the same with the apostles and the earliest Christian mission. How small and weak and fragile it all was. A few bruised and battered people and communities up against the Roman Empire... It remains the same today. The word of the gospel is carried along still by weakness and fragility, by things and people and churches that look small and unlikely. But that is how God would have it. So that we see that this all-surpassing power is from God. Friends, we must not be unrealistic about evil about the darkness of human beings and their potential for evil, our potential for evil. Ahab reminds us of this. But even more, we must not be mistaken about the power of the word of God. It is a power that can break down kingdoms in a moment. Because it is the power of the creator God who commands things to be. And that is the power that has been unleashed in the good news of Jesus. So I want to urge you today, brothers and sisters, neither to underestimate nor to be dismayed by the power of evil. There is darkness in this world, and we should not underestimate Human beings can be stupid, and they can be wicked, and they are capable of resolute, intelligent horror. But don't be dismayed. Don't lose heart. For these forces, this darkness, is as nothing power that stands against it, the word of God that says, Yes to creation. That says life to us in Jesus Christ. And it says it shall not be in the face of evil. That word is far stronger. And it will triumph. And finally, the same truth needs to be heard in our own lives as well. Sometimes the darkness in our lives can seem overwhelming. Sometimes it can seem like evil stoppable in my heart and my soul, like it has a foothold that cannot be dislodged. Its dark hold upon our thoughts, our fears, our desires can seem unshakable. And how weak the things arrayed seem just some friends and my hopeless Bible reading habits and my ordinary small group and sermons I only half hear and this shabby group of people at church. No offense. Actually, that's just for the morning service. You know what I mean. But remember Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and the Ravens. Remember them because they are not memorable. But they were all that was arrayed against the might of Ahab's darkness. But they had the word of God behind them. And so do you. So do you. And so you do not need to despair. For no darkness can smother that light. The Word of God can break open any darkness and overthrow it, just like it did to Ahab's dominion when Elijah appeared. Amen.